This week's episode is brought to you by me. That's right, for today's podcast, I'm advertising myself. Now that I'm done with my PhD exams, it's time for me to hop onto the job market, and I'm hoping maybe some of you can give me a hand. So, I'm looking to start a teaching gig either at community college, a private school, or a public high school, though I'm not certified to teach that. And, while I live in Washington State, I'd be willing to relocate pretty much anywhere for a job. So, if you know of any job openings, have advice for an aspiring teacher, or just want to send me some encouragement, I'd love to hear from you. Drop me a line at ijmeyeruw.edu, or send me a message through the History of Japan podcast Facebook page. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 128, The Fall of the Samurai, part 11. First of all, just to clear this up, no, you haven't gone crazy, the theme music didn't play this time. Or maybe you have gone crazy, but it has nothing to do with the podcast theme music. Unfortunately, the motherboard on the desktop I usually use to record has gone up to the great junkyard in the sky, and as a result, the files that I normally keep the intro and outro music stored in are not accessible until my new motherboard shows up. Fortunately, I still have a way to record, but for the next couple episodes, we're going to have to make do without the opening and closing music, so I apologize for that. We left things off last week at the end of 1864 at a moment of Tokugawa ascendancy. Choshu had been humbled, the Mito Rebellion brought to heel, a Shishi attack on Kyoto foiled, and it seemed the Tokugawa Bakufu had weathered the storm. However, appearances can be deceiving. In reality, some big changes were taking place behind the scenes that were about to be badly exacerbated by Tokugawa hardliners who were going to hugely overplay their hands. You see, as 1865 rolled around, hardliners in the Tokugawa Bakufu looked around and said, you know, we really have the upper hand right now. And certainly, to be fair, it did seem that way. As a result, those hardliners began to push policies designed to reassert Tokugawa authority over Japan. In the eyes of many in the Tokugawa government, too much had been given away during the struggle to stabilize Japan after the death of Inosuke. The hostage system of Sankin Kotai had been removed, the imperial court allowed to weigh in on politics, too much had been given away. These hardliners began pushing for and rolling out new policies designed to reassert the authority of the Tokugawa shogun and his government. Sankin Kotai, the old system of alternate attendance, designed to bankrupt individual lords and provide hostages for the good behavior of said lords, was to be reinstated starting in 1866. Court input was no longer welcome in the councils of the Tokugawa state. Anybody with shishi leanings or shishi sympathies was to be kept out of any type of government office. You can imagine that for average samurai, this came as a bit of a shock. Here we were, finally with an end to all of this internal fighting, now we can finally turn our attention to the issue of what the hell we're going to do about the foreigners, we have this nice equilibrium, but you want to just go upset the apple cart? Still, there wasn't much that could be done against this move at the time. Choshu was humbled, the Mito Rebellion defeated, there were no serious military challengers left to face the Tokugawa. So the great lords began grudgingly preparing to submit to Sankin Kotai once more, even as they grumbled that the money would be better spent on preparing defenses against the foreigners. 
the imperial court nobles most closely associated with anti-Tokugawa activities, people like Sanjo Sanitomi, Iwakura Tomomi, that sort, they fled Kyoto to escape the Tokugawa resurgence. Way down in Nagasaki, Sakamoto Ryoma was forced to flee his post at the Tokugawa Naval Training Center because of his shishi past and shishi sympathies. He'd been working for several years with Katsukaishu, who was himself a direct vassal of the shogun, but none of that counted more than Sakamoto's past as a shishi. Now, this shift in policy would prove to be a disaster for the Tokugawa in the long term, because it was a public relations nightmare. The thing to remember about feudalism in general, including the feudalism of the Tokugawa, is that it's really all about contracts at heart. A subordinate has certain obligations to their superior, but the superior has obligations too. Feudalism is not about absolute authority. It's very dependent on this idea of reciprocal obligation. Thus, from a feudalistic mindset, this new Tokugawa policy was a big breach of contract. After the death of Inosuke, the Bakufu had loosened up the rules to allow individual domains to concentrate more of their efforts on defense. Now the Bakufu was unilaterally tightening control back up, but crucially was not offering to take on more of the burdens associated with defense. Maybe all this made sense if you were looking at it from a national Japanese perspective. A strong central government would be more able to protect the country. But most of these samurai aren't doing that. They're loyal to their domains, not to any broad notion of Japan. That's very key to understanding the pushback against this Tokugawa resurgence. Individual samurai were, to use a bit of an anachronistic term, nationalists. But they weren't Japanese nationalists, they were domain nationalists. They didn't see things in terms of making Japan strong enough to resist the foreigners, they saw it in terms of making Satsuma strong enough to resist, or Choshu strong enough to resist, or Echizen, or Tosa, or what have you. For anybody viewing things from this angle, this new Tokugawa policy was a direct attack on the ability of their nation, that is, their domain, to protect itself. It is very easy to castigate the Tokugawa leadership for this blunder, but it's also not too difficult to see where they're coming from. After all, centralized power makes a country stronger, so they can justify their actions in terms of national defense. Besides, after the trials of 1863 and 1864, when so much seemed to be going wrong for the Tokugawa, when they were challenged in battle for the first time in two and a half centuries, can you really blame the Tokugawa leaders for wanting to reassert themselves? wanting to go back to the good old days of Inosuke, when uppity samurai off in the hinterlands knew their damn place. Now, it is worth noting that not everybody in the Tokugawa leadership thought this was a great idea, but it's really hard to be sure who lined up on which side. After the eventual fall of the Tokugawa, the new government is going to very carefully control the narrative of the decline and fall of the Tokugawa shogunate. It's going to very carefully pick who will be the doomed heroes honorably striving to uphold the House of Tokugawa, and who will be the villains undermining the honor of the House of Tokugawa with their despicable acts. So Tokugawa Yoshinobu, for example, the Shogun's guardian, 
comes off in most Meiji histories as a hero who opposed this policy for reasons that we'll discuss when we get to the ultimate fall of the Tokugawa. Matsudaira Katamori, on the other hand, the protector of Kyoto, the organizer of the Shinsengumi, he comes off as a villain. Both he and the Shinsengumi were demonized by Meiji historians because of their harsh treatment of the Shishi movement. It can be tricky to separate truth from fiction in this instance. For example, many historians today think that maybe Tokugawa Yoshinobu did think this new policy was a good idea. But to be entirely frank, I'm not too concerned with how much responsibility Yoshinobu, or Katamori in particular, had for these policy shifts. It's enough to note that they happened. However, all the dissatisfaction in the world would have been pointless without the chance to act on it. And so we will leave Yoshinobu and Katamori in the Schrodinger's cat-esque limbo of plotting, or possibly not plotting, the diabolical resurgence of the House of Tokugawa, and instead turn our attention to Choshu. If you'll recall, Choshu survived the 1864 Tokugawa attack only by signing a humiliating peace deal, involving a huge reduction of territory and the disarmament of all Shishi within said territory. The pro-Shishi faction of the Choshu government was forced out of office. Many of its members were forced to commit suicide. However, and this was a seemingly minor point that turned out to be pretty crucial, the Tokugawa force then went home before all the terms of the ceasefire were enforced. In particular, they left Choshu forces alone to disarm the Shishi within Choshu territory. It turned out, shockingly enough, that the Shishi were not interested in being disarmed. Furthermore, the Shishi were well organized enough to make a serious fight of it. Here we need to turn back to everybody's favorite indolent Shishi, Takasugi Shinsaku. Takasugi was, remember, a student of Yoshida Shoin, who became one of the major Shishi leaders in Choshu. Under Yoshida's tutelage, he developed an interest in Western military organizations. And so, while Shishi influence rose in Choshu, he made a daring decision. In Takasugi's eyes, Western armies were formidable not just because of their technology, but because they included people from throughout the nation. Remember, during the 19th century, conscription was the norm for most armies. The universal nature of conscription meant that everyone was invested in the struggle for national defense. So Takasugi Shinsaku began pushing for the establishment of new units in the Choshu military called Shotai. These Shotai would act like Western-style militias. They would ignore established social ranks and promote leadership based entirely on merit. They would not train in traditional methods of sword fighting that emphasized individual talent, but on group maneuvers designed for maximum efficiency. Most importantly, these Shotai militia would be socially mixed. Non-samurai could sign up. Takasugi himself founded a unit called the Kiheitai, or Special Attack Unit. The name is a reference to a quote from Sunza's Art of War. The Kiheitai was about 300 strong, and split 50-50 between samurai and non-samurai. Now, here's the thing. Takasugi's call for non-samurai volunteers actually did get a good response. Not from your average peasant or your day laborers, they had more important things to worry about. 
In fact, quite a few Choshu peasants had actually taken money from the French back during the Shimonoseki bombardments to help French troops tear down Choshu's own gun emplacements. That was how little they cared about Shishi issues. The call really resounded with what I am very anachronistically going to call the middle class. Professionals with specialized jobs that required at least some education. People in this group were literate, and interspersed with all the trashy novels and outright pornography they were reading, were some works of philosophy, especially from the Mito school and other Japanese nationalist scholars. The message of nationalist scholars, with its emphasis not on social division, but on an emperor-centric idea that all were equal in the terms of their obligation to the imperial throne, really resonated with people who chafed at the sense that as things stood, they would never be able to rise to equality with the samurai. So, given a chance to bear arms as equals with the samurai, it was this group that responded. In a move that would have made Oda Nobunaga roll over in his proverbial grave, a group of true Pure Land Buddhist monks, the same sect that had formed the massive Iko-Iki military movement of the Sengoku period, formed their own unit called the Kongotai, or Vajra unit. A Vajra is a sort of ritual object in Buddhism that represents divine wrath. Not to be outdone, a group of Shinto priests formed their own unit called the Shin-Itai, or divine might unit. One unit was composed entirely of sumo wrestlers, called the Yurikitai, or Brave Wrestler Unit. As you might imagine, not everybody loved these guys. Takasugi's subordinates were disparaged by other samurai for their westernized ways, and even censored by domain leaders for wearing western-style military uniforms in their spare time. The domain government even passed laws preventing higher-ranking samurai, or the heirs of good families, from signing up for Shotai service. Such higher-born samurai had to be protected from this kind of necessary but distasteful behavior. The vast majority of samurai who did serve in the Shotai were from the lower ranks of the samurai class. Samurai whose relatively low birth restricted their ability to get into high office. Thus, for samurai and non-samurai alike, the goal in signing up for the Shotai was not just to fight, but to attain an otherwise unattainable degree of social mobility. Convinced by this chance to sign up, none other than two of the future leaders of the Meiji state, Yamagata Aritomo and Ito Hirobumi. Both joined Takasugi's Kiheitai, though Yamagata was promoted to a higher rank than Ito was, something that Yamagata never let Ito forget. The Shotai performed well against the Tokugawa attack in 1864, but at their peak they never numbered more than 2,000, and thus clearly would not be able to stop the Tokugawa onslaught. After the peace treaty, many of the units demobilized of their own accord. However, Takasugi Shinsaku was not prepared to accept defeat. He was one of the leaders earmarked for imprisonment and execution, and was forced into hiding for a while as a result. However, in January 1865, he re-emerged and called on all Shotai members to rise up with him. They would march on the Choshu capital at Hagi, toss out the cowards who had signed a peace with the hated Tokugawa, and take over the domain. And lo and behold, the Shotai heeded his call. That's exactly what they did. 
In the span of three months, Shotai forces launched a general uprising against the Choshu government, defeated Choshu forces sent to bring them under control, and began their march on the capital. Many Choshu units, faced with the prospect of fighting these westernized troops, either conveniently maneuvered out of position, or they surrendered outright. Some, disgusted by their leadership, defected. By March 1865, Takasugi and company were camped outside Hagi, and after a brief round of negotiations, consisting mainly of the Shotai saying, do what we want or else, the city was opened up to them, and Takasugi moved in. The government that had signed the armistice with the Tokugawa was ejected from power. It had lasted all of five months. After this very brief conflict, which is sometimes glorified with the name Choshu Civil War, though I think that's a bit over-generous, Takasugi and his company began planning for what came next. Obviously, as soon as word got out regarding what had happened, the Tokugawa would be back with a new army to reassert order. This time it was unlikely that the Tokugawa would offer peace of any kind. So the order of the day was to buy as many guns as possible to prepare for the inevitable Tokugawa onslaught. As Takasugi Shinsaku was scrambling to find those guns, events unfolded on the other side of the world that would make his job much easier. Remember how I said that the United States would enter our story one more time in a big way? On April 9, 1865, the Army of Northern Virginia under Robert E. Lee surrendered to the forces of the United States government, led by Ulysses S. Grant. The Southern Confederate states still had a little bit of life left in them. The president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, would not be caught until May, and some holdout Confederate forces would last until June. But, that said, Lee's surrender pretty clearly marked the end of the war and of any real chance of Confederate victory. The triumph of the American government in the war was pretty important for the future shape of world history. But for our purposes, the most immediate result was far more important. Now that the war was over, the United States began to demobilize its massive army. As a result, it found itself with an equipment surplus. In particular, it found itself with a huge surplus of service rifles, previously belonging to rank-and-file troops. Some of this surplus was devoted to other American-supported causes, such as the War of the Republican-Mexican Government under Benito Juarez against the French-backed puppet emperor of Mexico, Maximilian. However, a good chunk of the surplus was dealt with in a far more traditional and, dare I say, American manner, the free market. The United States announced that it had a big old mess of rifles to sell, and some ammo to go with it, and since everything must go, the prices would be very reasonable. The U.S. government had a lot of war debts to pay off, and while there's always money in the banana stand, the second best place to go for cash is usually arms dealing. In Choshu, the news of American willingness to sell weapons to anybody with the cash to pay was greeted with elation those American rifles could really make a difference. It's quite possible that as little as one year earlier, a good chunk of Choshu Shishi would have resisted the impulse to buy guns from the hated foreigners, especially from the country of the infamous Commodore Perry. However, the foreign allied coalition, which had so thoroughly destroyed the Shimonoseki fortifications, 
had proven just how useful foreign military technology was, and how stupid it was to try and fight said weapons head-on. Besides, most of the Shishi who were utterly uncompromising in their attitudes, or who would have resisted this kind of innovation to the death, had already died fighting, either the foreigners, or the Tokugawa, or the Choshu government. So Takasugi reached out to the Americans, via a British intermediary, and made them an offer. Here's where we have to think back all the way to ten episodes ago, when I mentioned that Choshu Domain was one of very few domains that was fiscally sound. Choshu had a sort of emergency savings fund that, through careful fiscal management, had been preserved through everything that had befallen the domain. This was one hell of a trump card to play, and in mid-1865, Takasugi played it. He offered to clean out the entire fund, in exchange for as many artillery pieces and rifles as the Americans would sell him. From the Americans, he got 7,000 surplus rifles. From the British, several artillery pieces. I've had a hard time finding exact numbers. Takasugi then turned around and started building up his Shotai militia with these new weapons. Nor was Takasugi the only one dipping into his finances to pay for military modernization. While all this was going on up in Choshu, down in Satsuma, a similar project of cautious rearmament was underway. Remember, leadership in Satsuma at this point belonged to the now-teenage daimyo Shimaza Tadayoshi and his chief advisor and father, Shimazu Hisamitsu. Originally, the duo had been inclined to cooperate with the Tokugawa, figuring they could increase their own standing by acting as intermediaries between the Tokugawa and the imperial court. However, after the Tokugawa threw Satsuma under the proverbial bus by allowing the British to just come on down and blow up Kagoshima without so much as a peep, the Satsuma leadership began to distrust the Tokugawa. Instead, the leaders began to reach out to old samurai associated with the policies of the previous daimyo, Shimazu Nariakira, who had been far more interested in charting a course for his domain, independent of Tokugawa control. Satsuma also began to reach out to the British and offered to buy modern weapons and ships from British firms. Satsuma could afford to do this because of its monopoly over the domestic sugar trade in Japan. Satsuma controlled the only islands in Japan where sugar could be cultivated. Conditions on those islands were brutal. Disease was rampant, the natives kept in a state of squalor. Sugar was the only currency allowed on the island, and natives were required to cultivate sugar, and only sugar, for a living. Said sugar could then be exchanged at Satsuma-controlled trading posts for daily life necessities, like clothes, or tools, or food with, naturally, a hefty markup attached for the convenience of the Satsuma-run shops. Stealing sugar, keeping it for yourself in other words, or even licking your hands after handling the sugar cane, were crimes, punishable by beatings. These horrible conditions served the exact purposes they were intended to serve. They made the domain astonishingly wealthy. So when the time came to buy weapons, the domain had plenty of money to do it with. They found a willing arms merchant in the British. And don't forget, the UK was also involved in brokering arms sales to Choshu as well. The old British minister to Japan 
Rutherford Alcock, went back to London in 1864. Presumably the multiple Shishi attacks against his residence made him a little reticent to stay in Japan. However, his replacement, Sir Harry Parks, shared Alcock's distaste for the Tokugawa. The shogun claimed to run a national government, but couldn't control his own population, as evidenced by the fact that the British had to send their own forces down to Satsuma and Choshu to get satisfaction, rather than relying on the Tokugawa to clean up their own damn house. So, in a somewhat ironic twist, the British began looking around for somebody else who could be trusted to run Japan, now that the Tokugawa had proven that they could not. They found an answer in the very two domains they had so recently attacked, Satsuma and Choshu. This seems pretty strange, but it makes a little more sense than might seem at first blush. That's because of something we mentioned a few episodes back, the ever closer relationship between the Tokugawa government and the French. Tokugawa Yoshinobu was arranging for French advisors to train his army, buying guns from French merchants, all that stuff. And in a wonderfully cynical 19th century way, if the French supported someone, the British would oppose them. In the great game of 19th century power politics, the two premier world powers had picked their favorites. Incidentally, key to making the British connection work was a young member of Harry Parks' staff, all of 22 at the time the arms sales were going down, Ernest Mason Sato. Sato was the son of German immigrants to the UK, and quickly climbed the ranks of the British Foreign Service due to his remarkable linguistic talents. His ability to rapidly acquire and master languages was near unparalleled. Sato arrived in Japan in 1862, only a week before obnoxious merchant Charles Lennox Richardson was stabbed to death in the street by samurai from Satsuma. Sato was attached to the forces sent against Satsuma in 1863 and against Choshu in 1864, and in both cases worked to facilitate negotiations which preceded the British attacks. By 1865, after only three years, he was nearly fluent in Japanese, removing any need for the British to rely on outside translators. Thanks to his admittedly failed negotiations, he was also very familiar with many of the leaders of Satsuma and Choshu, including both Takasugi Shinsaku and Choshu, and Satsuma's leading samurai, Saigo Takamori. This made Sato the ideal conduit to facilitate negotiations between the two sides. It would also be a big career booster for him as well. After the Meiji Restoration, Ernest Sato continued to live and work in Japan, and would eventually become the UK's ambassador to Japan in 1895. He also married a Japanese woman and had two sons with her, both of whom were raised in Japan. I mention him in such detail because I think he's very interesting, but also because he wrote a memoir of his time in Japan called A Diplomat in Japan that shows his perspective on everything that's happening right now. It's a really fascinating read. You can find it for pretty cheap. So if you're interested in this period, I highly recommend checking it out. So even as the Bakufu caught wind of what was happening in Choshu and prepared a fresh force to go down and deal with it, Choshu forces were preparing. Next time, we'll move on to 1866 and the second Choshu expedition, and as we'll see, a bit more preparation will go a long way. 
That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Anne Lowenroth and Robbie Monsma for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Again, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week for The Fall of the Samurai, Part 11. It doesn't sound too weird without the outro music, right? You can just imagine me doing it if that helps.